All right. Well, if you missed last week, this is part two on uh, a two-parter of homosexuality and the church. And uh, last week, as Eric said, was an emphasis on the truth, even though I hope there was a lot of grace in all of those things I said last week. But uh, obviously last week leaned towards the truth. What does the Bible say about this issue? I want to do a little bit of a review with you. If you have, you have notes, I think, in your bulletins are yellow. You could pull those out. While you do that, I think I need to say, for those of you that don't know me and, and you're kind of here on a Sunday morning and you're like, who's this guy talking about the issue of homosexuality? What's that to him? Uh, you, you just need to know that I have close relationships with multiple people that struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay, I mean, people that are close to me, that have spoken to me about it, that have confessed sin to me that they would not share with another human being have, have said things. And I hope that my response has been nothing but love and grace, but also truth speaking. I've seen the Lord transform lives. I've seen people live holy lives that are dealing with this. But I'm not, I'm not talking about this issue in some sort of vacuum, there's this faceless other person out there that I'm talking about. No, these are people that I know and I love and that I speak with regularly and that I've seen God's powerful working in their lives. So I'm just going to say that. I'm just, just putting it out there um, so that you know a little bit of my context. My goal is not to out anybody that I know and speak of them, you know, anonymously, I don't want to give anybody away. People's struggles are their own. They are their own. But I know that as I'm talking this morning, that I'm speaking to people in the pew this morning that deal with this. I'm sure they're in this room with us today. And so I just need to be mindful of that. I need you to know kind of my context, where I'm coming from. As a youth pastor, this subject came up. You know, I've still got friends on my Facebook wall that have since graduating from high school, come out to the world and started a relationship with, a, with another gay person. I mean, this is not something that I don't know about and people that I don't love. I love these people and I know them. And they're my friends to this day. With that said, if you want to hear what does the Bible say about this issue, that was last week. You, know, you listen to it online, that'd be fine. Uh, this week is, what should the church do? What do we do? Quick review, though, on last week. I tried to have a very uh, gospel-centered outline. That is, we started, and you have it in your notes, we started with uh, creation, that God made Adam and Eve, and, and you see in creation God's purpose for marriage, that the two would become one flesh. A man would leave his father and mother be united to his wife. And so we say, there's the foundation for the whole thing. Because when people ask Jesus about divorce, he didn't just tell them his thoughts on divorce, which he could have done. He went back to Genesis. That's where we go. We go back to Genesis to see God's design. But then we know things didn't stay perfect in the garden. We know that things got messed up. And Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose sin. They chose rebellion. And every day that we choose rebellion, we say, yeah, we would have done the same thing. You know, Tomorrow when I sin, it's a reminder that I would have done the same thing. And in sinning, they introduce this infection into each one of our lives. And, and, and you read the Bible and you read Romans and you say, even though, even though God redeems things and God, and God saves people, all of creation's groaning. We're all groaning. Every, every person, every bug, every bird, every animal, 
every mountain, every plant, everything's groaning. Earthquakes happen. Not, not, even, not even the rocks of earth are safe from the fall. It affects everybody. And if you get saved, uh, Paul says, you're groaning too. You're waiting for the redemption of your body too. Things are not as they should be. But Christ is transforming us. So there's the fall. Then we looked at the law in Leviticus, and we noted that in the middle of a lot of sexual purity laws, in the middle of all that, come these prohibitions to engage in homosexual activity. Don't lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's an abomination. And so in the middle of all this, and so we would say, if, if, you, re- if you read that section this week, you've got law, 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 all dealing with sexual sin, and you'd say, yeah, I, all of these are good for us. We don't subtract the one that we don't like. We don't do that. We, we abide by these laws. And then we have redemption. Because the fact is, the law is never going to help somebody transform. It's never going to work. You read the law, and the only thing you're going to get from that is saying, I have failed. You know, the law is here to say, you've messed up, you haven't kept it, you've lied, you've lusted, you've done these things, and we're all condemned by it. And yet Christ didn't come to bring condemnation. Christ came to bring redemption. He he bought us back from sin. And so you read 1 Corinthians 6 and you go, this is beautiful because it's a list of sins. And then it says that we were washed, sanctified, justified. And, And Paul says, some of you were these sinners, but you're not anymore. And so there's redemption now. Which brings transformation. And here's where we, here's where I got short on time last week. We went a little long-winded. But transformation implies, is saying that the gospel demands that we change our lives. We've got to change. We've got to live for Christ now. It's not going to be perfect. If we say we're without sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us, John says. So, so we all sin, but we need to be following Christ and rejecting sin. So Romans 1 talks about sexual impurity. And many people try to explain that away and say, no, the homosexual stuff in Romans 1 is only uh, temple prostitution. And we say, no, Romans 1 is actually all about creation. They've rejected the creator who made us one way and turned to something unnatural. And unnatural in ancient literature actually has referred to homosexual practices. And I didn't say it last week, but it's worthwhile noting, if you didn't read your notes carefully, um, there's no instances in pagan literature of, of, of pagan temple idolatry of talking about lesbian prostitutes. They're not there. It didn't happen in ancient Rome, scholars say. And if that's the case, then that Romans 1 has to refer to something outside of temple worship. It's a word to all of us today. Now, the interesting thing about the transformation piece is you look at Romans 6 and the same word for impurity is used. Only this time it's talking about not giving your body as slaves to impurity, but giving them as slaves to righteousness. And then it says the gospel. Um, For the wages of sin is death. A lot of you memorize it in Sunday school, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope you memorize that. If If you don't know it, you should. That's in Romans 6, right after Paul saying, don't give your bodies to impurity. Be slaves to so, so the gospel demands transformation, and that's the part that I'm worried about for the church today, that we're not calling people to transform. Churches are starting to say, no, this is a, this is a worthwhile lifestyle. We're approving it. We're affirming it. And the gospel says, no, transformation has to happen. 
And then lastly, we ended on glorification, which is the picture of Jesus and the church, the groom and the bride. So if you change the definition of marriage, you're ruining this picture of Jesus and the bride, which is us. It's male and female, groom and bride. We are the bride and we'll be with Jesus forever. So marriage is a picture of that heavenly reality. That God gave us marriage for many wonderful reasons. One of them is to show us the joys to come when we get to be with Jesus forever. Okay? That was last week. Just a little refresher. You'll see it online if you want to hear more detail. But um, I want to start this week by reading a blog from someone that has struggled with same-sex attraction. I believe this is a man who, who, who knows who Jesus is feels differently than I do about what the Bible says about it, but I want you to hear the struggle. I just want you to hear this. He says, I'm writing this for the closet LGBTQs, but in a way, I'm writing this for myself. When I was where you are, alone in agony, I wish someone would have written to me just a word from a world where there were others, a red flare far out in the dark. And maybe your story's a lot like mine. Maybe you need these words more than I need to write them. Maybe you heard it first at age nine from the front row pew. Your pastor said it in ten seconds, and it felt like hell and hate were hurling down upon you. Maybe you heard it in the car with James Dobson declaring to the nation, to your family, that perverts like you don't get to have God. Maybe you heard it in everything that went unsaid. Maybe you opened up the book and saw six or so verses with their crushing words leaving your soul cracked wide open. Maybe you read them with a lump in your throat and tears down your face and trembling hands. Maybe a part of you died. And the message was received loud and clear. You cannot be known because you cannot be loved. You will not be welcomed. You will not be saved. You will lose everyone you care about. You'll be thrown away. So you ran backwards. You receded down deep, laid thick bricks all around you to keep everyone out. You believed it was all true, and you believed that hiding was protection. For me, for a long time, I believed them too. I believed God could care less. I believed the only way I would be loved and get my pardon from hell was to be straight. I believed that sometime long ago, before memory, maybe as a toddler, I chose to be gay. Because that's what the church folks said. This is merely a matter of choice. I believed it fully in my decaying heart until late one night at my lowest point. He told me something different. It was 1 a.m. and I was below the stars wrapped up in the backyard hammock. I was hyperventilating violently. Cries were choked out and breath was cut short. And I was all past hope. I asked him how his people, his followers, his body could be so cruel and tough and severe. Why are you like that, I spat? Why do you say you're on their side? Why am I even here? Why can't I be your child? Why won't you take me? I threw wild swings in the dark, imagining his face was right in front of me. I knew he was there. I believed it, but I was completely convinced that he didn't care a bit about me. He hated me, and I was all past hope. But in the middle of the madness, in the swinging and the cursing, a sudden seam was stitched. 
a bridge between my before and my after, a moment that changed everything forever. It came quietly like the first drops of rain, gentle and cool. It was five words, and they were the sweetest ones ever spoken to me. I am not like them. I was struck and lulled and captivated all at once. I lost my breath and my arms fell limp to the grass below. I placed my hand over my heart. I squeezed my eyes shut. I listened to it echo through my soul, reverberating over and over again and again until it matched the rhythm of my returning heartbeat. I am not like them. I am not like them. I am not like them. The great I am heard me, saw me, spoke to me, came to me. The great I am is not like them. The cries and moans didn't cease, but they came from a different place, a source of pure joy and adoration and peace. And I hang on to this memory with all I have because it's all that I need. I am his love. I am his joy. He likes me and he loves me and he saved me. He reached out and wrapped his big arms around me and it was like he had waited forever for this. He loves me and he loves you too, whether you believe it or not. It's true. Now, reading his words, I hope that adds, if you don't know anyone that has felt this way and been in the church and felt rejected, I hope hearing those words can give you empathy. That you may never know what it feels like to be in those shoes, but you can hear, you can listen, you can imagine what that would feel like, to feel like not even God can love you. Maybe some of you have been there and you have felt that. And so you can relate to that. I read other blog posts by this young man. I don't agree with all of them. But I love what he said in that post. And I thought it was worth sharing with you. What should the church do? Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's the goal. Um, I want to survey 1 Corinthians and look at how Paul instructed this church, knowing that this church was messed up. I mean, you read this church, uh, read about this church, and you might say, wow, I mean, they've got a lot of problems. They fight over spiritual gifts. Who's more spiritual? They have gross sexual immorality. Even when they take communion, it turns into a fight. At least we don't fight over communion here, right? Man. And so you read this and you're like, whoa, what a messed up church. But isn't it amazing that when you get to read about a messed up church, it helps you reflect on your experience in the church. Praise God the Corinthians were messed up as they were because we wouldn't have had this amazing letter to gain from and and, and to see our experience in light of it. It's Christians behaving badly. Okay? Now, I have no agenda for how I outline this. I'm just surveying the book. Okay? So I'm starting in five. From there I'll go to six, and we'll just keep moving up the book. There's no no brilliant outline to this other than I want to take you through 1 Corinthians and show it to you. Okay? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you're proud. 
Shouldn't you have rather been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. What is Paul saying here? He's saying there's a huge issue in this church. You've got this guy committing gross sexual immorality and he's proud of it. And you are proud of it. Wouldn't it be better to throw this guy out? Turn him over to Satan. I think the idea is put him out into the world to see how the world really is and maybe he'll see the depths of his sin and return repenting. I love that Paul doesn't really imply this guy is unsaved. It's almost like the hope is his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. That he's a brother, that we're, he's a person that claims Christ. It, there's no like he's, he's going to hell. It's that he needs to learn to repent. This is a serious sin. And so you might read this and go, wow, uh, do, do we separate from people in the church that sin? Well, then we wouldn't be meeting together this morning. Okay? We'd have, you'd have a church of one. Paul is saying this. The church has to separate and judge. You see the word judge in there. The church has to judge and separate itself from those who claim Christ and are proud of their sin. Those two things have to go together. Because if you have a person that's proud of their sin but doesn't claim Christ, well, then you need to be their friend and be Christ to them and, 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 and love them and, and do all these things to show Jesus to them. Be their friend. Whether or not they ever become a Christian, just be their friend. Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he got called that. That was a negative thing people called him. But if a person is part of the church, maybe a member of the church, as we might talk today, someone that claims Jesus, I am saved, and I'm doing my sin over here, and it's all good, and I'm proud of it, it's fine. Those are the people that are dangerous to the church because their sin spreads like yeast and other people in the church will start believing them and doing what they do. And then you have more sin. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No way, Paul says. No. This is a way of protecting the purity of the church and teaching a, perhaps a believing Christian that they need to repent of their sin too. So, when you read 1 Corinthians 5, understand, I'll say it again, if a person 
is sinning, and we could say a sexual sin like homosexuality or like adultery or like many other ones. And you say to this person, are you a believer? Yes, I'm a brother in Christ. Do you feel bad about your sin? No, I don't. In fact, I think it's okay. That's where the issue comes in, and that's where you expel the immoral person. They have to be proud of their sin and claim Christ. Um, look at chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at this last week. I want to look at it again briefly. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of you were. For the person struggling with same-sex attraction, they, they need to hear these words. This is what you were. But now you're washed. It might be a reference to baptism. You were washed. You're cleaned up. You were sanctified. In other words, you were made holy. This is past tense, by the way. You were sanctified. You were justified. God looked at you and said, not guilty, even though you've done these things. The church has to proclaim number two that every sinner needs the gospel that washes completely. It washes, sanctifies, and justifies every sinner who believes. There's no special standing for heterosexuals in God's sight. Okay? There's no special standing. Because we're sinners. And, and it'd be better to be the tax collector who goes into the temple and beats on his chest and says, God save me, I'm a sinner, than to be the Pharisee that doesn't have as many sins but feels proud of it. You understand the, the correlation here. For those of you proud of your heterosexuality and the fact that you're pleasing to God because of your orientation, don't get this wrong, that you are a sinner in just as much need of grace and you have no special standing before God except for Jesus Christ. That's the truth of God's word. It may be helpful now to make a distinction. You have this in your notes the three-tier distinction, I think it was towards the top, um, that when Paul says, that's what some of you were, I think Christians have taken that verse to mean that, that a person with same-sex attraction can completely transform and become heterosexual. Often, and very often, that is just not the case. You just can't turn the switch off. Would you dare tell someone they got saved who was an alcoholic that they need not worry about going to the bars anymore? Go ahead, go to the bar. You're saved now. You're free. We all know we live in the flesh and that the flesh is a traitor. So let's not import that thinking onto brothers and sisters who just want to please Christ. Oh, you can be different. You can be like me and heterosexual. Maybe some can, but by and large, the stories that I've read, no, it just doesn't happen. The distinction here, the three-tier distinction, is um, a way of talking about this, this issue. That is, people that say, I am gay, are often speaking of an identity. That this is who I am. It's not changing. I embrace it. I live it. This is me. It's identity. We would say to this person with identity, Christ is our identity. Before I'm an American, 
I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ. I'm Christ's disciple. Before I'm a philia, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. That, that that's top identity. Okay. You go down a level and, and you have a little less secure grasp on on what this person is saying about themselves. I have a homosexual orientation. That can mean I'm a believer in Christ but I have an orientation that doesn't allow me to feel attraction for someone of the opposite sex. I'd like to, maybe, but I don't. And I've read the stories. I, I read uh, Wesley Hill's book this week, Washed and Waiting, and he says he would go, he's, he's a believer, a celibate believer that, that struggles with attractions to the same sex. And he says, I went to a wedding. I danced with a young lady, beautiful young lady. I felt nothing for her, nothing. I wish I felt something, but I didn't. I never have. Orientation speaks of, I can't change myself. I can't change what I'm attracted to. It doesn't speak about whether they're acting on it. It just speaks about where the attractions lie and how hard it is to change them. One level down is attraction. I experience same-sex attractions, meaning maybe my makeup is a little more moldable. Maybe it's a little more moldable. Maybe there's a chance I might experience attraction for someone of the opposite sex. I would think the bottom level, attraction, is a very helpful way for a Christian person to express themselves in this way. I experience same-sex attractions, but Paul says that's not what I am now. He says that's what some of you were, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. These are different ways of talking about the issue that hopefully maybe are helpful as you think about it. Okay. We'll keep moving. We look down at uh, towards the bottom of chapter 6, verse 18. It says, Flee from sexual immorality. All sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins against his own, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You were not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Some say that the church needs to remain neutral on this issue, that, that we need to let people decide for themselves and we shouldn't speak to it. But based on what I've, I think we've looked at last week, the Bible's clear on it. And the Bible says here sexual sin is serious enough that we have to say something about this. We, we have to take action. We, we need to have a stand, a loving stand, but a stand nonetheless. And so number three, the church must take sexual sin seriously because it's a sin against the body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What I've heard from some of my friends who are same-sex attracted is this. Why doesn't the church preach about gluttony, greed, gossip, the three evil Gs? <laughs> they ruin people. Those things ruin people. I mean, Paul says people leave the faith because of money. Seems to me if you leave the faith, you're heading to hell. And if you're, if you're heading to hell, then, then greed's a pretty serious issue. Greed. Gluttony. Isn't that misusing your body? The temple of the Spirit? And the church does need to talk about these things. It does. I, I, I say it. We do need to talk more about these things. Holiness is something that God demands of the church. But we also take seriously that we live in a culture 
where churches are starting to affirm same-sex attraction. They're starting to bless so-called gay marriages. They're starting to say, this is okay, we bless it. This is a union blessed by God. And if God doesn't bless it, how can the church bless it? If the word of God doesn't give its approval, how dare we as a church give our approval? We just take it seriously because the Bible takes it seriously. Okay. Those are some harder words. Here's some uh, hopefully redemptive, what, how, how do we approach people kind of words. Go to chapter 7, verse 26. And we will read through uh, 35. 7, 26 through 35. Because of this present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. He's talking to the singles, by the way. Be single. Good for you to remain as you are. Um, even the married. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. If a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it wasn't theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as if, it's, as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's point is, he wants every believer to be as devoted to God as possible. Do you hear that? Like he's saying, you might as well just remain single because then you get to, you get to serve God more wholeheartedly. But if you marry, that's fine too. I mean, don't get me wrong, he says. You can marry. It's, marriage is wonderful. But just think about how undivided your heart might be if you remain single and devoted to God. We call this a gift of singleness. It's a gift that many people don't really want. I mean, just being honest, most of us want that relationship. But Paul points this out as a, as a viable option. And so I read this and go, this is an answer to the person struggling with same-sex attraction and they can't change their orientation. I'm using that language, orientation. I can't change what I'm attracted to. Then I would say, you remain celibate. I believe the church needs to celebrate celibacy. Okay? I mean, that, that, that has to be our, our attitude, our position to this. When we talk to folks struggling with it, say, celibacy is it. Now, I want to I talk in a second about maybe the difficulty of that. Oh, I'll talk about it now, actually. When I say celebrate celibacy, you understand that what you're asking somebody is to not enter into a, a uh, relationship with, pers- with, with another person the way you are with your spouse. Subtract your spouse from your life. How would that be? How would that feel? 
Those of you that experienced the death of a loved one, you know exactly what that's like in the loss. Imagine never even having that person to hold, though. And, and so when I say we celebrate celibacy, as a church, we have to be supportive then. We, we have to say, I get it. You're not going to have someone to come home to at night. And so I need to be there for you as a friend. I need to be the person you can call at 2 a.m. when you're angry that you don't have that person in bed with you tonight the way I have that person in bed with me. Celebrate celibacy. I'll say something else about it. Uh, Let's look at the next passage, though, that just kind of piggybacks on this. Look at chapter 12, verse 25. One more thing on celebrating celibacy, by the way. Do you understand that if we say celebrate celibacy, Paul is saying if you have an undivided devotion to Christ, that is incredibly noble and spiritual and wonderful. Could you look someone in the face that struggles with same-sex attraction and is celibate and understand that what they're doing is an incredible act of devotion to Christ. Maybe even greater than your own. Or can you only think of these other negative thoughts towards that person? There's the challenge. Will you celebrate celibacy the way that Paul does, to the extent of saying, I think you should all be like me. Oh, I also didn't mention this present crisis. At the very beginning of that passage about celibacy, he says, because of this present crisis, remain as you are. I don't know what the crisis was. Was it persecution? Is is it Caesar doing things? Uh, I know at the very least, Paul says, the time is short. Christ is coming back. And Paul didn't know when. We don't know when. But we live in light of the fact he's coming back. And it's a wonderfully noble thing to live a life of undivided devotion to him because he's coming back. Okay. Uh, We're in chapter 12, verse 25. This is the wonderful passage about how we need all the parts of the body, the eyes, the ears, the nose, even the foot like me. And, uh, (laughs) all right. And so in verse, what did I say, 25? Am I right? Yeah, 25. So that there should be no division in the body, but the parts should have equal concern for each other. Parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And so I say, church, you're going to have to learn to suffer with our brothers and sisters with same-sex attraction. You're going to have to learn to suffer with them. You're going to have to be the one on the other end of the line at 2 a.m. when they're calling, frustrated, and angry because they're alone. That's going to have to be you. You're going to have to be their friend. You're going to have to invite them into your family. And when they come out and when when they talk to their parents about their issues and their parents reject them because their parents don't know grace, you have to be the one to show grace. You have to suffer with them. You have to hear their heart. And you have to back up and say, I will never be able to relate to the depth of your struggle because I'm a married person and I know what it's like to have a spouse. Can you do that? Will you do that? Will you find ways to suffer with? Now, of course, suffering with doesn't mean you feel everything that they feel. 
but that you try to understand it and walk with them through it. Otherwise, we're going to have a lot of lonely people in the church that are same-sex attracted, and they will go someplace where they do feel loved. And maybe in that place, they're actually affirming of the behavior. So we have to step it up and go out of our way. Which leads to my next point in chapter 13. Oh, man, I keep thinking of, you know, like one more thing on the body analogy, by the way. Do you know that that again speaks to the fact that the church might even need celibate, same-sex attracted Christians, that they're part of the body and we need them here? Okay. If anything, if anything, if I'm talking to a celibate Christian, I'm thinking to myself, they've said no to lust. That speaks a word to my heart. I hope it would to you too. And I know celibate, same-sex attracted Christians. And they do speak to my heart. And I admire them in a huge way. Okay. I think I said everything I wanted to say there. Uh, Piggybacking off that is chapter 13, 1 through 8. You all know this chapter. You might have had it at your wedding. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move a mountain but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. And so love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If this would be our stance to the person coming in our midst with same-sex attraction, it would be a beautiful thing. And so I say the church has to learn how to extravagantly love the same-sex attracted person. We've got to figure that out. How am I going to love in a way that stands out, that seems too good to be true, that seems too amazing, that seems too gracious? It probably means, and I've often thought about this, I'm a truth teller, I'm a preacher, but for me, I think, if I'm talking to somebody, my first words are not to declare their sin. I probably wouldn't do that to someone else struggling with sin either. I'd probably try to love them well. Be in relationship with them and earn the right to speak truth to them. It's a good word. So if you, if you, if you are part of a church that loves the truth, as we talked about the truth last week, then you also have to be the church that shows extravagant love. has to be. And if you become rude... You're not loving. You're not being the church. Even if you've said truthful things in a rude way, that's not love. And we've got to be better than that. A final word. So proud of myself today. I'm on time. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. If I could, uh, if I could address. The, um, those in the room with same-sex attraction, here's my word for you. Would you go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 7 through 10? 
Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardship and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends that are dealing with same-sex attraction, it's true, God loves you deeply. And what he wants to do is transform your thorn in the flesh to be a testimony of his power and his grace. That's what he wants. Transform it. Use it. Use it as a testimony to others. And he will as you submit to him, as you give this to him. It's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be very hard. But your thorn in the flesh can be transformed. And anyone that makes you feel guilty because you have this attraction, just, just because it's in you, and if, people that make you feel guilty for that, just, just stop. Understand that God loves you deeply and that we all have compulsions to sin and we all face them every day. And God can take any of our sin and transform it into that testimony of his grace and power. Uh, some churches have treated same-sex attracted Christians like they need to keep it a secret from everyone. Don't you dare tell anyone about what you're dealing with. How then can we gain support and love and prayer? How then can you declare God's goodness in your life? How can you declare his sufficiency if you don't talk about it? I'm not saying it's something you, you might be the person to come up on the stage and say it, but more than likely, probably the kind of person that will share it with very close and trusted friends the way people have shared with me. And it's powerful in my life. It's transforming in my life to see God's power in someone else's life in that area. When we talk about God saying, well done, good and faithful servant, that can be heard by you can be heard by you. And I, and I hope, I hope you feel the love of God here in this place. And I pray that if there's any prejudices or rude and wrong things said in the past here, that that would be transformed. And I will say, if you've experienced that here in another church, on behalf of the church, I apologize for those hateful words you've heard. I pray that none of mine were that way today. I've given you a few resources. I'm going to pray in a second, and then the worship team will lead one more song. But I've given you some resources in your, um, in your notes there. The top book is called Washed and Waiting. I read it this week. Excellent book by Wesley Hill. Uh, he is a celebrate, celibate, same-sex attracted Christian. Deep thinker. Loves the Lord. Deep struggles and deep pain from this. But it is well worth the read. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend you put it in people's hands that need to think about this. Um, powerful words about living for the glory of God and wrestling with this. Um, I, have, I think they're still out there. I have some notes for parents of preschoolers, elementary school, and junior high on how to talk to your kids about this when it comes up. Uh, some, some helpful things to say and some things you probably shouldn't say that don't help the conversation. 
If you'd like those, those are on the table out as you walk out. I'll have, I think we'll post that on the table as well, the link to those, those articles, so you can download it if we run out of the ones out there. But um, let me pray. Uh, we will discuss this whole topic in cross-training at 1045. You're invited to come back to that and talk a little more, ask questions. Um, let me pray. Worship team, come on up. Father, uh, I pray that your church would be the church. That it would be so full of, of grace and truth that even those that slander us would see our good deeds and be able to glorify you. Lord, I know that there are, I'm sure there are those sitting here today that are dealing with this very thing and they feel like the, the spotlight is on them this morning. Oh God, I pray that they would feel nothing but your love in this moment. Nothing but your desire for a deeper relationship with them. May they know how accepted they can be by their creator. Thank you, God, for the transformation you bring to all of us. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for calling us to act and be like your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.